episode of Public Problems. I'm your host, Justin Bullock. Um, this is season two, episode number five. And in this episode, I have a conversation with some Bush School students, and we talk about eugenics and gene editing and the future of some of these technologies for uh, solving problems, for creating new problems. Um, but we talk about the need to think carefully about how these policies, uh, how these technologies are regulated and managed, because um, we're entering some new territory with some of these tools. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, episode six will come out in two weeks, as usual. And thanks so much for following along. Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. Today we're going to be talking about eugenics and gene editing. I have with me today uh, six Bush School students that are currently working on their Master's in Public Service and Administration. They had an opportunity in a course to dedicate a lot of time to researching a public problem or public issue. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk through what they learned. Um, and so what I'm going to start with is letting them each introduce themselves and say their name. And then we're going to jump into uh, a background of eugenics and gene editing and kind of look at the history of it and talk through different instances in which this has been used in the more recent past um, and what some of the current issues now are with it today as we start thinking about advances in technology and our ability to do gene editing more carefully. We're going to talk about what's a range of outcomes given this technology and some of the best predictions for what we think uh, the policy issues are going to be around the issues of gene editing. And we'll talk a little bit about some moral dilemmas this creates and how we might start having this conversation as a society about how we want to use these tools. So with that, I'll let the guests introduce themselves. I'm Dakota Lampkin. I'm Kyle Asbell. I'm Harrison Dolly. I'm Oluwa Bukala Makindi. I'm John Soriano. And I'm Christina Mulligan. All right, and I'm your host as always, Justin Bullock. Um, so let's jump right into this. Now you spent, as part of this, I know you spent some time tracing the history of eugenics and gene editing. And so maybe you could start there with what are some of the earliest um, incidences of this and how have they played out over time? Yeah, so eugenics was first coined in 1883 by sociologist Francis Galton, but the actual idea came from Gregor Mendel in 1866. But in our research, we found that the idea of editing the genes came back as early as pre-Civil War time in the United States, where um, slaves were bred depending on physical strength, uh, physical ability, and um, facial makeup. So during the time of slavery in the U.S., there's actual historical accounts of sort of using like breeding practices with the slaves to try to get different types of stature or strength or looks? Yes, because they wanted slaves to be superior in strength in order to basically get the most out of the slave as they could so they would practice in slave breeding. So is this through like forced sterilization or forced Mating or forced mating. Um, a lot of the accounts that I read were specifically about the tolls this took on women um, and the rape culture that was happening at the time. Okay, and so from the Civil War and the U.S. Uh, moving forward, what are some more instances of this? So at the end of the 18th, 
uh, 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, this turned into, as you mentioned, forced sterilization, especially in the European country, countries, on people that they deemed as mentally dis disturbed or anyone really that they didn't like. And this usually was done by gender, race, religion, um, depending on which country we're looking at. Um, in the United States specifically, it was mostly against women and minorities. Uh, so this, was, this has already happened, it uh, happens after the Civil War in the US, not just in Europe in some of the cases that we might be more familiar with, but it continues on even after the Civil War. Yes, in the United States it has continued on until present day for sterilizations. Um, that's around the 1930s, 1950s, where we're talking about um, specifically targeting against the mentally disturbed. Um, but the most famous use of eugenics is obviously in the 1930s and 1940s with the Nazi regime, because um, they were trying to get the pure Aryan race, um, specifically trying to get rid of anyone that they didn't like, racial, using racial hygiene, using forced sterilization, um, regulating interracial marriages, um, all the policies that kind of dictated that time period. And so a term I wasn't aware of until reading your report um, was racial hygiene. Yes. What, what does that mean exactly? It means keeping a specific race pure of other races. So keeping Germans all German, not having per se like Italian or Russian in their gene. I see. And so is this like forced through like... Uh, not being able to marry other races types of laws? Is that kind of mostly how it was enforced? Yes, that's how it was enforced in Germany, and they enforced it in most uh, Western countries until well into the 1970s as well. Okay. Um, the Germans specifically used it for people, but they also used it in animals and plants and the terrain of Germany because they really wanted everything to be genetically German. Uh, and so the policies after the Nazi regime changed for the most part in the world because after basically the horrors of the Holocaust, the UN had put in place um, the basic human rights of every group of people so that um, this sort of thing wouldn't happen again. And that's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, right, by the UN? Yes. Okay. Um, and then moving more into the 1950s and 60s, there was less of what we consider eugenics going on because of the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, however, um, this also led to social changes like the repealing of policies for um, regulation of interracial marriages. Those started going away in all of the countries. Um, st um, stop allowing forced sterilization. Um, and then we kind of get more into the technical stuff of it. So up through um, World War II and through the UN Declaration, getting to, say, the 1970s, when you think of eugenics, this isn't what we're going to be talking about um, today in the form of gene editing. These weren't really, there weren't, we didn't have that technology. And so when it's been used over the last um, 100 years or so prior to the 1970s, is it most, are the tools that governments used to um, conduct eugenics is has it mostly been through forced um, sexual relationships um, and sterilization I mean and then mass like Holocaust like mass killings are those the am I missing any of the major tools that that have been used up until we start talking about the 
the double helix and DNA and, and what we know now? No, those are pretty much all the major ones that they've used. Um, like I said, in the Nazi time, they did like backbreeding of animals, which doesn't actually work. But the idea was if they bred animals in a certain way that they could produce an animal that was already extinct and it doesn't actually work. Okay. Um, but again, they didn't try this on humans. Um, okay. All right. And so that gets us up to the 1970s. And I must say, um, it's not, um, at this point, seeming to be a hard argument for doing more of this. Right? right. I mean, this is a pretty torturous, awful, violent history. Right? I mean, there's not yes. a lot of... Are there any examples up until we start um, getting into the 1970s and a better understanding of, of genes? Are there any instances of, instances of it being used for helping out with disease or things that could be thought of as positive? Well, the idea was is that they were getting rid of diseased people with genetic defects and mentally disturbed people was the idea. The original idea came from Gregor Mendel, and he didn't intend it, in my opinion, on being used towards humans. He was talking about genetic hereditariness of plants specifically, and his idea has kind of got morphed into this, we can create better human beings through so the idea is that certain people shouldn't be allowed to reproduce because they have bad genes. Yeah. And so if we keep uh, people who have um, learning difficulties or learning challenges, um, that that's genetic. And if we don't let them reproduce that bad, you know, quote unquote genetics yeah. um, would be removed from the gene pool. Yeah, that's essentially And then the, and then the Nazis just took that as a towards like, uh, groups of races of people, right? Yes. And then it's also had a storied racial history in the U.S. by keeping, um, trying to prevent different types of races from marrying, for example. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then that gets us to the 70s um, and forward. And so technology starts to change then. What happens? Yes. Well, in the 1950s, obviously, the discovery of the DNA helix comes about as well as... Um, different testing to find genetic um, abnormalities in fetuses before they're born. Mm -hmm. And the test um, to find out the extra chromosome and Down syndrome also came about, but there wasn't really any testing on humans, per se, trying to modify the gene, just finding out what's going on in the genes. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 1996, obviously, we have Dolly the sheep, uh, a real clone of animals, which is part of the idea of eugenics. Um, but none of the real experimentation started happening more within till the last like twenty years. Okay, so we find out about the, the DNA double helix in the fifties, mm -hmm. and we are slowly learning more about the human genome. Um, there's a human genome project as well. Yes. Uh, that comes later. Um, Dolly, uh, in 1996, and then so what? Uh, so from there we talk. We start talking about actual gene editing. Yes. All right. So. Okay, where are we with gene editing then? Um, gene editing uh, basically started off with um, nucleus editing. Uh, it's a very complicated science, so I can't really delve too much into it. Uh, I'm not a certified scientist, but essentially uh, scientists began to figure out that they could remove, uh, delete, or even replace certain genes in the human genome. And... Um, 
there were many processes that came out of this, such as uh, zinc finger nucleuses, um, which attack certain ba uh, DNA bases, and talons uh, nucle nucleuses, which attack another certain set of bases. And then in 2014, we had this amazing discovery called CRISPR-Cas9. It was discovered in a bacterium, and it was found as a defense mechanism against viruses. Viruses, of course, are organisms are made up of purely DNA. And the bacteria could recognize this rogue DNA and remove it. And scientists figured out that if they gave CRISPR uh, the, or the process that does this, the right genetic code, that it could use Cas9, a certain protein, to go in and remove all types of DNA and replace it with a new kind of DNA. So the idea is that you can take some type of protein, and Cas9 is what it is, right? Cas9 protein, yes. And use that protein to go in and edit the genetic bases, which are also proteins, right? Yes. And so this protein can go find proteins in the DNA and remove uh, remove them and either remove them and just cut them out or remove and replace, right? Yes, remove and replace. Uh, basically, there are, uh, the scientists uh, put it into three sections, which I've already sort of defined, but I'll explain them again. It's uh, you can remove, replace, or um, delete. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, remove, replace, and um, I, yes, I guess edit the other one. Uh, yes, and edit, okay. yeah. edit. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, one of the best analogies I've heard of this so far is CRISPR is a GPS system. And if everything we knew about the human genome was a map, CRISPR is the GPS that allows us to go in and find that certain uh, geo like geo point, and we pick it out out of a thousands and remove it. Okay. So that's giving you the actual location of the exact protein that you need to change. Yes. Okay. However, there is a disclaimer that needs to go along with this. Okay. We have been fairly accurate so far in bacteria, which is where we found this uh, process. However, when we start applying it to uh, larger organisms, um, from what I've read and from the research I've done, we start experiencing off-target effects, mm -hmm. which is... Uh, the CRISPR might go in and remove a certain gene, but it could remove another gene along with it if that RNA uh, strand was not coded correctly, and this could create a unwanted mutation or a unwanted effect. So with simpler organisms, um, the accuracy rate of the editing process is really high. Yes. And it's also, which as I understand as well, pretty high at the large organism, organism level as well, but sometimes there are mutations or sometimes yeah. there's cutting and editing that was unintended. Yeah. And it's not perfect right now. And it's no, and according to some scientists, it's nowhere near safe to use yet with humans, mm -hmm. but we are in that preliminary stage. Excitingly for the scientific community, uh, the... Uh, a study in Britain just got cleared to uh, be allowed to use um, human embryos that have long past their lifespan mm -hmm. to start using CRISPR-Cas9 in them. And they've done a whole process and there's a lot of regulations behind this and the research is approved. But this is the first we're seeing of human embryos being used with CRISPR-Cas9. That's really interesting. Yeah. One other piece of this that um, I remember being an issue with um, editing 
genes is we're also not sure what purpose all of our genes have. And so the science of understanding which exactly genes you would even want to edit to get different types of yes. outcome is also not completely understood as well. Yes. I heard a, a, a recent podcast interview with uh, Jennifer Dudna, who is one of the founders, uh, one of the discoverers of CRISPR-Cas9. And I know one thing that she highlighted was, I think her belief is that it is, is more accurate than sort of we're talking about today. So I think mm -hmm. she believes that even in larger organisms, the target yes. rate of hitting the right protein base in the right mat area that you were using with CRISPR is pretty high. Her real concern was the second issue, which is uh, before we can use it on humans in a way that's useful, we have to we have to understand the the relationships among all the genes a little bit better. So I think that's another piece of this mm -hmm. that's keeping it from being uh, able to use in humans yeah. as well. Yeah, um, if you really just go in and Google CRISPR-Cas9, you'll see just as many uh, papers on advantages, and you'll see just as many papers on disadvantages. <laughs> And um, with this paper, we wanted to uh, highlight really um, both fields and bring both of their concerns to the forefront, just so that policymakers can understand that the science is not perfect yet, but it is really good. So I think there's a nice transition away from the actual mm -hmm. science and technology because none of us around the table are scientists. No. So let's <laughs> move back to areas that we know a, a little bit more about, which is maybe some of the, um, instead of the specific science pieces, what are some of the expected benefits of this or expected kind of positives of gene editing? Because it seems to me that we're not there yet, but from what I can tell about CRISPR-Cas9, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it's, still, it's coming. Like we yeah. will continue to develop these skills. The ability to edit specific genes in humans is just not that far away. It's like a technology that's coming. And so given that that's our state of the world, what are some of the, what's the range, actually before we get to the society stuff, what types of things can be done with gene editing? So uh, I read a couple of uh, news articles on this and uh, we have some really, uh, there's some, some really cool stuff we found. There's recent gene ther therapy that was cleared by the FDA in 2016 to allow the treatment of leukemia and AIDS. Uh, a man uh, in the U.S. today with Hunter syndrome uh, is now receiving gene therapy treatments to cure his Hunter syndrome and to help with the um, ailings of, of that. And really, one of the big medical benefits is, of course, uh, the past three things I mentioned is disease. The gene editing can alleviate humanity of a lot of its genetic diseases. We're talking Alzheimer's, Huntington syndrome. Um, HIV and AIDS, which are viruses, mm -hmm. um, can be uh, gene edited out of a human system. It is the possibilities are beyond belief, but a lot of our gene, our a lot of our genetic diseases could be cured. So one big, obvious, clear benefit of gene editing is completely erasing certain genetic diseases from affecting the human species, yes. right? So what are some other that are less um, directed at disease? What else can we do hypothetically by editing genes? Well, um, I think we could understand the biological makeup of other cells in our organism. So it would understanding our genes would help us 
preferred better solutions to diseases. Then also for women, you could determine the sex of your baby. You mm -hmm. could know the sex of your baby. So I think those are like subtle ways of which we can use gene editing. So I've, I've heard of stories that some of this is already being done, yes. Um, yes. Yeah. right? You, and so what can you already do? You can yeah. select certain genes. I don't know to the extent of which ones you can, but most importantly that they've done, you can select the sex of your baby. But it's not just, it's not after conception, it's before, it's in the IVF use of mm -hmm. um, fertilization. Okay. All right. So is, it the, is the idea that, is it before fertilization? So, it has to be after fertilization, right? It has to be after, but I mean, yeah. it, it's not an already pregnant woman comes in and then asks mm -hmm. you. It's in the process of when the doctor has to implant the egg and the uh, sperm together in your uterus, they have to do certain genetic stuff to it. I'm not quite sure exactly what they do before they put it inside the woman's So uterus. I think my understanding of this process is that they fertilize a number of eggs right. and then which uh, embryos exhibit the characteristics in the genetic material that's then the one they implant in the uterus yes okay. i think that's how it's done um okay so that's one example so you could theoretically right you could pick sex of baby mm -hmm. you could pick eye color yeah, is that yeah. eye color um we might find that as we learn more about genetics that what intelligence could be related to genetics or gene material uh, memory and other sort of cognitive tasks, um, like the ability of your brain to do different things, is yes. mm -hmm. probably at some level related to genetic material. Um, also adaptability, be able mm -hmm. to uh, make humans more adaptable to a certain type of environment, mm -hmm. such as um, we might find out that there's a genetic reason uh, for Tibetans having larger lungs so that they're able to breathe uh, uh, thinner air mm -hmm. and so we might be able to uh, turn off certain genes turn on and off certain genes that could make humans uh, more resistant to environmental changes or more uh, adaptable to environmental changes. So in some ways which I'm sure we're, we're going to get this coming I don't want to go there yet but we're really talking about in some ways maybe even changing what it means to be human right yes. um, there it seems like there will be some ways to use gene editing processes over time to have different types of humans, different sizes of humans. Um, it seems like the potential for the way in which we can edit genes could certainly mean we have, we'll be thinking uh, differently about what it means to be a human, right? right. So on that, we, we talked about some of the positives or some of the potential positives, and let's not undersell them, right? I mean, vaccines have rid uh, the human, not completely, but the human species in general of a lot of horrible diseases. A lot of these genetic diseases, a lot of people, millions and millions of people are suffering from every day, right? And so that's, that's huge. And uh, if we take an agnostic stance on whether this is good or bad, um, changes to the human genome, for example, could give humans different types of abilities that they don't currently have, right? right. Some of which could be longer life, some of which could be um, anti-aging, some of it could be super strength, super intelligence maybe. So the, the potentials for this are really, um, there's a huge kind of uh, potential benefit, I suppose, or change. So on the more negative side, as we looked at the history, I was, I was giving you a hard time that, uh, it doesn't seem like there have been any positive uses of this, depending on how you define positive. But 
rape and forced sterilization, um, I'm not going to be able to get behind that those are positive things. So how might moving forward, having the ability to take some protein in a needle and give it to enter it into your blood system, change your genetics um, and change who you are, um, it sounds like there could also be some nefarious things that come a result of these types of technologies. Uh, yeah, one, one thing that we should distinguish is that um, a lot of the ethical dilemmas that have occurred in the past come from this, the ability to change somebody's looks and um, not so much on the, taking away disease. That's where a lot of the implications come from. Mm -hmm. For example, if modern eugenics becomes um, a more prevalent practice and we advance to the point where it's safe and we can change how people look, um, one concern from a uh, we got this from the a book called The Ethics of the New Eugenics by McKellar, is that there will be more of a homogeneization of the human race. So imagine like society has, what if society came up with the ideal person, you know, and so, and we had the ability to create that uh, using gene editing. Eventually, the argument is that, um, you know, like they, they'll choose those traits in their children and then those children when they mate with, with other people will have less genes to choose from and less genes to uh, reproduce from. And so... Um, so, so you're talking about maybe a less diverse species, for example. Absolutely. Like society might, societies might decide sort of to go back to the, to the German example during the Nazi, Nazi regime is like deciding and even a government might, might decide like... Not only, you know, you kind of highlight that people as a culture might decide, or at least that's sort of what it seems like you're implying, but it might be that the government decides that only the only people that will be citizens of that country are the ones that choose to be the superhuman, that are all look one specific way and, and do away with um, genetic diversity. Right. And, you know, if you think about it, if there's less genetic diversity, one might argue that of, you know, children of the future have less freedom to choose who they can mate with, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, and a lot of other arguments come, there's one from the religious, you know, background is that, um, you know, people are uh, playing God, uh -huh. per se, uh, per se, and, um, you know, it comes from the religious um, narrative, and it comes from, you know, people not, the argument is that people have the ability ability to no longer choose to humbly accept their children as they are, but rather have the ability to not play the natural lottery and to choose that for themselves. Yeah, which I remember you highlighted in the report that this creates an interesting ethical dilemma. Uh, and the one that I thought was uh, particularly interesting from like a philosophical standpoint um, is uh, parents and you, you hope parents in general can unconditionally love their children because that's the children they got. Yeah. Right. And so this could have some weird impact on having to make choices, deliberate, active choices about who your children are going to be in advance. It almost starts to put kind of some kind of strings on what it means to be a, a child that deserves love. Right. You know, it's, it's definitely arguable that, um, you know, parents once they have this choice, you know, they have that option to unconditionally accept their children or not. And, you know, it, one has the question, this is one argument from the book, is that a child that knows their genes were edited has the um, ability to question their parents in knowing that, like, did I have something wrong with me? You know? Yeah, because it was an active choice. When it's just, 
which is your genes being passed down through sexual reproduction like it's done now. Um, instead, their parents made active choices about who they would be. That's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Right. And, um, you know, it's definitely uh, straying from the, the traditional um, parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, society, I think, will have to really question, you know, what love is and what does it mean to have a child, you know, um, and to accept that child. Um, I think another issue that we should talk about is uh, discrimination um, amongst the human race because um, I think it's very easy to um, distinguish between somebody, you know, like we were talking about early, earlier, with somebody with edited genes, almost like you mentioned earlier, like potentially different people mm-hmm. from people who don't have different genes. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be, I think we have to be very careful as a society to, you know, place policy that prevents discrimination like that. Um, and so, um, and also kind of define, you know, um, what's, what's allowable, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so one, one, I think those are some really good, um, and interesting cultural ethical considerations that are coming. One of the, the things uh, that strikes me about this also is from the, from an oppression standpoint. And so it seems like if, uh, authoritarian regimes where uh, that, that don't necessarily respect the UN Declaration of Human Rights, right. as they gain access to this technology, right? You could imagine like um, genetics that are related to certain personality traits, like submissiveness, um, or um, uh, I mean, submissiveness is the one that comes to mind uh, first. Uh, go ahead. Um, actually, there's also. Uh... Uh, they get make a better army out of it. There's mm-hmm. a gene called the warrior's gene, and that can make a person either submissive and or it can make them a fighter. And so it, the warrior gene keens your flight or fight response. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what you're kind of going for there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They get potentially make a sect of their population warriors and fighters loyal to re- the regime, and a sect of the population to be submissive. Yeah, and by design. Not by design. That, but like sensitivity. Yes. And relatability, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. take that away from someone and they won't have emotion towards other people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, man. Okay, so the range here is, <laughs> I mean, it's just wild, right? To yeah. think yeah. about something that could cure all genetic diseases, help ease suffering and pain in humans, and help them achieve even greater things than they've been able to now, mm-hmm. to um, eradication of certain types of humans. Or you can imagine certain races of humans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the way that... What, what I was thinking about a moment ago was um, governments could certainly use the same tools, they uh, the same have the same aims, same goals that they did uh, in World War II and before to cleanse a type of person from the planet. And they could do it without forced sterilization. They could do it without rape. They could just do it with inserting a, uh, a protein into your body. Um, and so you can even think of like how that could be used for things like bioterrorism, right? Seems so like a clear example to me that if you can target someone and all you really have to do is insert this protein into them with a certain genetic information and it'll change their gene, change their genes. It seems like a pretty crazy, um, effective and efficient tactic to, to assassinate people, yeah. to target people that you want dead. I mean, the use of this, of this by organized crime, for example. I mean, this could be really violent as well in terms of destroying people's lives. Yeah. Okay. 
So we have a pretty wide range of outcomes. Um, what does this mean we should be doing from an administration and a policy issue? The thing that you are most experts in, um, what types of things can we do, given that this technology is coming, to push it towards these uh, arguable, I mean, curing genetic diseases seems like an inarguable positive thing to me, although I imagine there would still be some uh, religious concerns with the idea of playing God, but these seems like these seem like things that would incredibly ease suffering and add a lot of potential to the human experience. So how can we make sure we end up in that direction or give us a higher probability of inter, uh, ending up in that direction? So the key here is going to be for us to move slowly, both as a government and as a people, because uh, we don't know what the expected outcomes are. They can go from anywhere from eradication of disease to a, you know, a better person to these horrible disasters that could come. And so just looking at the past of eugenics, we need to understand that to look forward to the future of it. And so governments, both nationally and internationally, need to slow the process down and make sure we are preventing the worst case scenarios. Obviously, we all want the best case scenarios, but we're much better off if we take it slow and find that happy medium where we can, yeah, it may take a little longer to get to that perfect scenario, mm -hmm. but we can get, we can advance towards it. Just talking about kind of risk minimization, right? Making sure that we have this technology well validated, that it actually does what it's supposed to do, that we don't unintentionally infect the entire human race with a zombie gene or something like that, right? So like take our time with implementing these in, I guess specifically from like a medical purpose. Um, so, okay, pace ourselves, what else? Um, one problem just with, with policy in the U.S. so far, that uh, insofar as regards gene editing and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. is that it's not keeping pace with technology. Mm -hmm. Technology is quickly advancing and currently is far ahead of where the policy is. Mm -hmm. um, in order to be proactive and to keep the worst outcomes from happening, we need to speed up the policy. The policy needs to be looking ahead to the future and not back where we were 10 years ago. So at first it maybe sounds contradictory from the previous statement, but I think what we're saying here is that we need to slow down the implementation of using uh, CRISPR-Cas9, for example, make sure we understand the technology, make sure society is comfortable with or understands the ways in which it's being implemented. But then what you're saying is we need to be very proactive with trying to think about how to regulate this. So we don't need to just let it kind of play out, we need to be out in front of it saying, okay, here are this, here are the situations in which we know this, we, we know this is safe, and here are the situations in which we don't know this is safe. And so making sure that the laboratories or the other organizations that are working with these technologies are regulated in a way that makes sense given the fast pacing advancement of the technology. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, if we want to take a take a slower approach then our policy needs to needs to reflect Catch that. Up. So to take a slower pace of implementing it, we need to speed up the policies around it so that there's a framework, a, a regulatory framework or a governance framework in place uh, before this spills over into the bigger, the larger population. Yes. Exactly. There's a there's a gap between the two because science is pushed to advance as quickly as possible for the benefits that we can get from it, whereas our government 
is set up to move more slowly so that we can be more deliberate. And so there is that gap between the two that needs to be merged together in some ways so that we can actively prevent the, the atrocities from the past from becoming the future. So um, I think those are, are, are both well taken. So how can we catch our policies up with the technology? I know that one thing uh, that's mentioned in the report is maybe an international... Um, yeah, an international scientific body. So what, what's the suggestion there? So similar to the Geneva Convention or um, the nuclear armament that we have for the UN or for climate change, those sort of agreements that we have for international bodies, um, the idea would be to have one for science as well so that we have a governing eugenics body who um, provides um, support or denial for um, propositioned research to make sure that there's not uh, so that we can prevent something like Germany where they went off and did their own scientific experiments. So we can prevent that and just kind of oversee the research as it's happening. That way um, it's not getting off track. We can make sure there aren't these things happening. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's really um, a good point. One, one other thing that's nice with the kind of international association or international scientists association uh, with thinking about eugenics is it creates norms around the culture of research and so and norms for other countries to respond to. And so I think the Geneva Convention is a good example of creating norms on how war is going to be conducted. It doesn't mean that there aren't departures, right? It doesn't mean that there aren't people that um, that choose to shirk that or choose to not do that, but it at least creates the norm of the type of behavior that we would like. And so I think these international agreements, international governing bodies, or international regulatory bodies um, can help come up with a you know do no harm norm around this, and that that can also um, help shape the direction of the research moving forward. Are there other um, things that uh, that y'all found or thought of? that uh, governments or that uh, society can be doing to be proactive in thinking about um, these tools for eugenics? Um, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about eugenics given the history that my colleague just gave. But um, I know we didn't talk, really talk about this, but I think the society should be more, should have more knowledge on the possibilities that we could get from eugenics. Like, um, I read in an article that only two states were doing, that's the state of California and Iowa were doing prenatal screening and diagnostic screening for um, pregnant women that want to know the sex of their babies and also maybe change um, certain things that they don't want. Like maybe there's um, a case where your baby has some genes that are not that are going to affect the future of the child, probably change it and edit it. So maybe we could be more informative about the possibilities of eugenics and just debunk the misconceptions that a lot of people have because there are a lot of possibilities with this science. And if it's geared towards the um, benefit, ben benefits instead of, I know there are a lot of um, criticisms about it, but if people think more about the benefits then I think we could go a long way in changing the minds of people about eugenics. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's a really interesting point that you make. And it, it reminded me of something that when we were talking about um, 
some of the potential negatives of being a parent, how it will change the relationship between the parent and the child. Because the child might say, um, why did you make me this way, right? And so what's interesting about this is thinking about it from a slightly different lens, but in the same type of, of domain, which is imagine if your parents had the opportunity to make it so that you were super smart and then chose not to. Like as a parent, if you knew this was 100% safe, you knew that we had exactly targeted the intelligence gene. Let's pretend like that thing exists. We don't know for sure. But then it would almost become a moral imperative to give your child that opportunity, right? Arguably. Maybe not people would disagree, but if you don't, if everyone around them is super intelligent and you don't give that to, to your child, um, that almost seems immoral in some other way, right? By having the ability, I mean, for example, vaccines, right? Vaccines, some of these arguments about playing God um, could have been argued in the, in the vaccine space as well, right? And it would seem criminal, I mean, it doesn't quite play out this way in society, <laughs> but you would think it would seem criminal in, in, um, to not Im, uh, immunize, immunize your child, right? Or if, you, if your child had access to the world's best education and you just chose not to give it to them, right? So this has some weird, uh, some interesting, um, some very interesting potential benefits, like we said earlier. And I, and I think your point is well taken that when I, when I think of eugenics, first of all, when you all were talking about wanting to do eugenics, I was like, oh, eugenics. Like, I, I, I didn't even think of like gene editing and CRISPR-Cas9. I just thought, oh. And then... Um, and I think, so I think it has a little bit of a branding problem, sort of like um, artificial intelligence, right? We always think about killer robots and you think about Terminator, right? right. We don't think about all the nuanced ways in which artificial intelligence, for example, is already improving society, right? Yes. And so we have to think about all the ways in which, yes, there are some, there are lots of real um issues and risk involved and we need to make sure we get the science right we need to make sure we get the tools right before we start using it yeah um but i remember in the in the um in an interview i was listening to recently that, that there have already been examples of scientists giving themselves crispr cas9 treatment huh. right and so um people are going to be using this stuff anyways over time yeah. and so um i think that if we talk about it outside of its normal, which I was guilty of today, saying like, oh yeah, eugenics, all kinds of bad things. But there have been. Yeah. But I don't know that we think nuanced enough about some of the ways in which it can clearly benefit health outcomes, for example. Right. Yeah. I, think it, I think it's important to, to just distinguish between, you know, it's really good to be able to get rid of, you know, deadly disease that's possible mm -hmm. because of, you know, genetic mishaps, but at the same time, I think we have also have the question as a society, like what is freedom? You know, we have increased freedom um, to choose what our children look like through, you know, modern eugenic practices, but at the same time, you know, the child kind of loses the freedom to be the part of the natural lottery and is instead a slave to their parents' choices. For example, like what if, what if I as a child like grew up and wanted to be a really great basketball player, but um, you know, I chose, my parents chose genes that made me really intelligent instead. There's just so many choices and um, it's hard to make an objective standard of what's, what's the right choice in terms of using this technology. Right. Uh, yeah. I, 
Well, I was saying like it goes back to your class that we as a society have to decide what our values are, what we're willing to accept and what we're not. If we don't want eugenics, we have to accept the fact that we might not be able to cure these diseases. And if we do, we have to accept the fact that people might use them to harm society. So it's something that we as a society have to decide what we're willing to give up. Yeah, I think that's why this um, I, I can sense disagreement in the group uh, about the different potential concerns and benefits of eugenics. And so my expectation is that throughout society, people have differing opinions, but it's a conversation we, we've got to start having because these tools are coming, right? Yes. And then in some ways to the point of this, this paper and the point of this uh, report that y'all have done, um, it's already here and we're not talking about it, right? You don't hear intelligent, well thought out conversations in the news, for example, about some of the pros and cons of gene editing. Um, and so I'm very happy that the six of you took on this topic. Um, I think it has enormous um, ramifications, either positive or negative for societies all over the world moving forward. And so it was really nice to see you lay out the history of it, think through some of the potential ethical concerns and think through some of the ways in which we can try to nudge this, if it's coming anyways, into directions that we as a society are comfortable with, right? Yeah. All right, well, we're approaching uh, kind of the end of the episode today. I want to thank each of you for taking the time to come and talk with me about your report today. Um, this was a lot of fun for me, mm -hmm. and maybe the six of you will tackle other interesting <laughs> research projects in the future, and we can do this again. So, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Season 2 of the Public Problems Podcast. If you would like to help support this podcast, you can do so by sharing the episodes with your friends, family, students, and liking our page and following along as we do live events. You can also support the Public Problems Podcast financially by subscribing to the podcast at justinbullock.org slash subscribe or by clicking the Shop Now button on our Facebook page. Here you can pick any monthly subscription or single donation amount that you'd like to contribute. Any support is greatly appreciated. I very much believe in this podcast and its content and hope to make it more visible and have more time to spend on it in the future. Thank you very much.